Good morning. Good morning. All right. I'm Jake. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to be up here today and share God's word with you during this Advent season. And I don't get to do this very often. And I'm a, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit nervous. So I pray that the Lord uses me in some way, even if it's just a little bit. And, and if he doesn't, then I pray that you guys have a really short memory. Right, Chad? <laughs> Advent is it's a reflection time. It's, it means that something is coming. We reflect on, on Christ and how he's come in the form of a man, a baby, to save his people from the darkness that they walked in, and, and he brought them into his lights. That's why you see we have the candles lit here. It, it, it demonstrates, it shows the light coming into the darkness, You'll notice how we light another candle each week for the four weeks of Advent leading up to Christmas. And Josh noted last week how the Jews, in much of their history, they reflected on the work that God did to bring them out of slavery from Egypt and into the promised land. And they also, how they were looking forward to a Messiah, someone who's going to deliver them from their anguish with a lot of groups that were oppressing them and and we too, we're in this waiting uh, period. We are awaiting the Messiah, but, but we can do this with hope because we know the Messiah. We know him. Christ has come. Death is defeated, but we still wait for that consummation of eternity. It's a beautiful, but it's a, a hard place to be. So this Advent season, in the midst of our unique circumstances... And for many, I know, it's just a time of, of anguish. Let us put our hope in Christ, knowing that our destiny is secure because of God's work on our behalf through Jesus the Christ. And I want that to be a theme throughout this morning, as it was last week, knowing that we are in this time before consummation, this, this ugly this messy, this sometimes sinful, a lot of times sinful world, and we're waiting. And how do we, as Josh spoke last week, treasure Jesus? As we saw our wonderful counselor, and as we'll hear today, our mighty God in the midst of the anguish of life. And I hope to bring that out today in the second theme of our text after we heard about wonderful counselor last week. So please join me in prayer. God, you are good and kind and gracious and powerful. And I pray that your might is on display in the text today and that you use my words, Lord, that I don't offend your word and and that you soften the hearts to hear what you have for us today, Lord. We love you. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. All right, I, I want to start with a story that's going to jump back in time quite a ways. It's the early 2000s. It's when I uh, ventured out to the East Coast and went to school to play and also played college hockey. Um, I, I was outside of the comfort of my home my surroundings, and I was thrown in this world of college athletics, and, and along with it, all the competition and the grandeur and, and uh, unfortunately, even the debauchery that went with it, I came from a Christian household. I was really involved in the church in my hometown, but, 
But honestly, something was amiss in my growing up. I heard the gospel a bunch, but I never really understood it. I was a part of the church, I was involved, but, but I never really knew his word. And because of that, the results were that I really had no convictions that I could stand on. And my, my philosophy was that I just try to be a good person, try to work hard, and then hope that God would bless it. And in college, eventually, this pursuit of the world and the flesh really became attractive to me, and I jumped in. I was finding success and what I thought was fun, and I really felt that I controlled my environment. My happiness was dictated by my performance, and then as long as I was performing, then life was great. And this went on for a while, and then then all of a sudden, life gets disrupted a little bit especially when it came to my success on the ice. I made a couple of mistakes, and then this, this sovereignty that I thought I held over my, my results and, and, and what was going on, it just kind of came crashing mm-hmm. down on me. And all of a sudden, my playing time, which was a huge deal, uh, and my results were, were taken away from me. Comments from my coach like, ah, I wasn't playing good enough, and, and that other people were doing a better job than me, it started to infect my mind and my confidence, and I was thinking, man, I trained my body, I put the work in, I worked harder than most people, I aligned myself with good people, but at this point, it just didn't work, and, and I started to get depressed, and my understanding of my efforts not being rewarded, like, it really just caused me to question my life's purpose. Like, what, what's, what am I doing? What am I, why is this happening? This is everything I put into this. And, and I really, I struggled in this place for probably a better part of three years. And, and I vacillated back and forth, being valued for my skills and then being criticized for my skills. And, and the stuff didn't just affect my athletic life. It bounced into like every realm of life. And, and I was hurt and I was pretty miserable um, I'd escape, I'd medicate with alcohol, you name it. But in the background, something was working. Something was going on. I, for some reason, had this tug that I needed to get back into the church. Life was good. When I was in the church, maybe that's what I was missing, so I connected. I'm, I grew up Lutheran. I connected with this really eclectic, small Lutheran group that we'd meet every week for hymns and a discussion. And to be honest, it was just devoid of the true gospel. Like, it, it just wasn't there at all. And, and, uh, uh, but I, I thought this was a start. This is good. I was hoping that this would get me back on my path to success in the rink. And, and really, it was, it was a pagan idea for me. It, it was karma. I was hoping I'd go there and I'd get rewarded. And it was a pursuit that was all about my self-preservation. And in the meantime, I was invited to, this is totally random, but I was just invited to a study with a pastor to go through the book of Romans. And in this new instance, like my two worlds just collided. My world of, of performance and success was met with a much mightier foe. And I said my my world of work and performance and worth was hit head on with the true gospel of Christ in the book of Romans. And week by week and verse by verse, my sinfulness met God's perfection, my weakness met his strength and his grace, and my sense of self met his value 
of me. And, and my life was, pro- was, it was transformed over the last year and a half of college. It wasn't perfect, but gradually I started to understand God's work in my life and what the gospel actually meant. What being transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son actually meant for me. And in this time, through his word and his spirit, I was counseled by him, as Josh spoke of last week. And and through his might, I was conquered. My hopes of going to church to bring me success in hockey was a train wreck for me. It did the exact opposite. It let me know that life wasn't about me. It's not about my success. It's about him. My performance, my success matters nothing if it's not seeking after God's glory. That noise in my head, the the me, 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 that noise in my head was starting to be silenced by a mighty God. And I still played hockey. My position in the world didn't change. And as with most, I tried to pursue excellence. I even continued on to a hockey career but there is a fundamental change. My worldview was transformed. I was in it for, for totally different reason. And, and, and of course, I'll meet adversity. And when I did, I met adversity when I was in anguish. I was remembering that I was not my own. I was bought with a price. And, and my focus changed. My focus started to align with things that were above and not things that were below, and his power was perfected in my weakness, and trust me, I dealt with a lot of weakness. I, st- I still do. You can just ask my wife uh, about that, but I was learning that I didn't control success with my worldly ventures, and also that those, those didn't matter anymore. It wasn't perfection, trust me, but my direction was changed, just like Israel. I forget. I forget about the power of God. I forget about the goodness that he has. And I needed, and I still need, people like you, brothers and sisters in Christ, to point me to the powerful God who controls all things for his glory and for our good. I know I'm not unique in that conquering experience from God. The the might of God is powerful. His power is evident everywhere from creation to the end of time. And as I walked in in darkness and pursued self-glory, God broke me through that. The Advent text, as we learned last week, It's a prophecy from Isaiah in the time of the 8th century B.C. And the text is really set up to give this glimpse of hope in a super tense geopolitical struggle when Judah and Israel were mostly looking out for their own self-interest like I was and ignoring God's power in their life. And conversely, they'll see that when they trust him, God will work mightily, as he did with a king named Hezekiah, who brings repentance and protection to Judah. And we're going to see this prophecy be partly fulfilled here with him, 
but it really points the true and final fulfillment with Christ. So let's read this again. It says, For those who were in anguish, in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. This is, this is that area north of Jerusalem, Samaria, where the ten tribes were. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep, dark, deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his presser, you have broken as on the day of Midian. That, that's when God used uh, Gideon and his 300 to destroy the army in, in Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All right, let's, let's dive deeper into what's going on with Isaiah in this section. The nation of Israel is split at this time. It was once a united kingdom. You have Saul, David, and Solomon with a united kingdom. And then once Saul, or Solomon dies through the rebellious leadership of the tribe of Ephraim, we're going to see them split into two different groups. And in the north, we're going to have the 10 rebellious northern tribes, and they're going to be referred to as Israel. And then we're going to see the two southern tribes, going to be referred to as Judah, and their capital is going to be Jerusalem, where this Davidic throne reigns. And, and both nations throughout their history had some uh, uh, numerous gods that, or numerous kings that were not followers of God. In this time period, we're going to see King Ahaz, who's going to be in charge of Judah, and he's one of the worst kings that you could ever ask for. He was totally involved in pagan pursuits and, and other nations and even other gods. And in the north was King Pekah, and this guy was equally as bad. So we have two horrible kings that are leading the nation of Israel and leading them astray. And, and during this era, there's going to be a huge superpower. As Josh spoke about this last week, it's going to be the Assyrian Empire, which is to the northeast of these two nations. And they're going to threaten both Israel and Judah. And this situation compelled Judah to confront really a, this fundamental question, like what... And where are God's people going to place their trust for deliverance? Is it going to be their own tactical maneuvers for self-preservation? Or is it going to be in the prophetic assurances of God's might? And this question of what and whom to trust was most intensely put on to display on two different occasions. The first one is going to be in 735 B.C., 
during the reign during the reign of King Ahaz. And under pressure from Assyria, the superpower Assyria, the northern kingdom of Israel is going to form a, a, a defense alliance with a bordering nation called the Aramaeans, and their capital is going to be in Damascus. And together, these two kingdoms are going to try to force Judah to join them against Syria. And Isaiah is going to tell Ahaz during this time, he says, don't do this. Don't align with these other powers to go against Assyria. And we're going to go back to chapter 7 here, two chapters back. We're going to see that happen. We're even going to see God himself tell Ahaz, this king of Judah, to not align with these people, to trust God. And here's what it says. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign to the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shale or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to test. And he said, this is Isaiah speaking now, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. And this is really an indictment on Ahaz. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the same son that is talked about in chapter 9 that we read earlier, where God promises a better king, born of a virgin named Emmanuel. It's both a hope for the nation of Judah, and we'll see for all nations, but it's also a condemnation on Ahaz. Ahaz refused God, and he negotiated with Assyria, and he gave them a boatload of gold for them to not attack them. And Ahaz surrendered the Davidic throne to a nation that was hostile to the kingdom of God, and he blasphemed God in return to what he thought was his own preservation. And it worked, but temporarily. Assyria didn't destroy Judah then, but the cost, as we're going to see, is going to be horrible. Assyria did end up wiping out the Aramaeans in the city of Damascus in 732, and then they're going to continue to work and destroy the nation of Israel, the 10 northern tribes. These are going to wipe them out. They're going to throw them into exile, and they'll never return to that land. And we're going to see how God used his might against these unbelievers. He used his power and his justice to destroy them. And Judah, through Ahaz, is coming up next. And it's interesting to note here, right? God's power during this time, it wasn't usurped by these pagan nations, If you read Isaiah chapter 10, the next chapter, you're going to see that God is the one who raises up Assyria. He calls them the rod of his anger, and he uses Assyria to judge Israel for what they did. And he's saying that he uh, is not letting Judah off the hook either. And this is going to happen uh, around the second Um, or 20 or so years later, and it's really the second crisis that Judah is going to have to deal with. So in 701, we're going to see another threat 
another big Assyrian Empire threat come, and it's going to be during the reign of Hezekiah. Ahaz is gone. Hezekiah Mm -hmm. is his son who's going to lead, and Hezekiah is a good king. Hezekiah is a king that loves the Lord, and we're going to see him go face-to-face with Assyria. He initially tried to negotiate a truce with them, and Assyria is going to burn with anger when that goes bad, and, and the wrath is going to be built up against Judah. But this time, Hezekiah, instead of trying to have this self-preservation, is going to really put his trust in the Lord completely and leave everything up to him and see how he is powerfully faithful. The people of Judah, they had this hope that maybe, maybe Hezekiah would be this mighty God that Isaiah was talking about that would, that would sit on the throne of David. And it is partially fulfilled in him. Hezekiah repented towards the Lord. He led Judah to do the same. And when Assyria leads one of the most powerful sieges in all of the ancient Near East, they're going to come down with 185,000 men and surround the city of Jerusalem. And I could imagine being inside those walls of Jerusalem. I would be shaking on that. And Hezekiah is probably shaking, but he's putting his trust in the Lord. And out of this, during the evening, the 185,000 strong Assyrian army were wiped out in one night by God. Wiped them out. And this partial fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy about a son is teased out here. But it wasn't a total fulfillment. We're going to see Hezekiah have this uh, in Judah. There'll be an eventual downfall, and it's because he entertained these Babylonian envoys, exposed everything that they're doing, and really from his unguarded openness, we're going to see Babylon come in and and do some uh, extreme damage, showing more of Hezekiah's weakness or just temporary power that he had. Hezekiah's birth signified God's presence with them in a crazy circumstance. But the prophecy of of royal hope that he had was to serve as a model or a type which pointed to a final and a true king. The ultimate fulfillment of royal hope began with the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we consummated with his glorious return. Christ is the true mighty God. He's the true and perfect fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He's the son that is born to us. In Luke, we see an angel, Gabriel, come to Mary, and he's saying this. He says, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
Sound familiar? And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered him, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. God came in as a baby, but his might is undeniable. Hebrews 1 says this, Long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in the last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This same omnipotent creator took on flesh and used his might to fulfill what was spoken of hundreds of years ago to the prophet Isaiah. He came to live a sinless and perfect life, one who had the power to take our sins and bear the wrath of God, the one who was crucified on a cross and died and was buried, and through his might, he defeated death and all that rots and decays through his resurrection and through his might, he now rules and reigns the right hand of the Father as our mighty mediator. He's the one who made the great exchange for us. He took our sins and gave us his righteousness. He took our sorrow and he gave us his joy. He brought us from death to life. This, the Messiah, the Christ, has the government on his shoulders. The increase of his peace has no end in our lives and our lives to come. As Isaiah says, through his zeal, the Lord of hosts accomplishes this. Amen? Amen. We have a God who has made promises to us and has the power to come through on those promises. He does. He has. He will. And I need constant reminders of that. I'm going to look just like Ahaz and try to negotiate a peace and success for myself outside of God's will. So let's apply that to us. How are we turning to and treasuring Christ as the mighty God amidst the anguish we live in? Are we trusting God's power in our lives? Do we forget what what he has done? Do we trust his provision? There's a, a graphic that's coming up on the screen, and it aligns, it calibrates my worldview, and I I love this. We're going to see there's two circles here. One is God's kingdom, and the other one is my kingdom, my story. We're going to see a line, Jesus, that's like a dotted line, which this is not what it's supposed to be, and we're going to see me heading into God's kingdom. And let me read this. It says, even as a believer, I can still wrongly live for my own kingdom, where my mission is to protect myself and my glory. And I often believe that Jesus joins my kingdom where I'm king to make my kingdom work. And when my kingdom fails, I blame it on God. It's his fault. He's for me. He should be doing this for me. And we're going to see that is the opposite of what a true biblical worldview is. We're going to see God's kingdom, God's story. God redeems me. He places me 
in his kingdom where Jesus is king to accomplish his purposes. And when I seek his kingdom and his righteousness, he provides all I need, all I need for myself and to put him and his glory on display. Why would I treasure Christ amidst this life? It's because I am not my own. Through his power, he brought me into his kingdom for his glory and my good. It's what we've been looking at for this entire Advent series as we wait in the anguish of life, the already but the not yet. How do we treasure Jesus as our mighty God? Because we're going to be put in places and situations that are going to cause us to question his power and his goodness. But we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I see it better as a Spurgeon quote I'm going to put up here that says this, that God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when I can't trace his hand, I must trust his heart. Every problem that I've created in my life is a result of either having a wrong view of God or a misunderstanding of the gospel. Everything falls into these two categories. And how I react and respond to the things in my life that are out of my control reveal what I really think about God and what I understand about the gospel. Now the question is then, during those, what are the truths that I need to grab onto and use as a filter? There's a book written by Tim Chester. It's called You Can Change. And he boils this stuff down into four truths that we can grab onto in the midst of, of chaos. And here's what they are. It's, it's God is glorious, God is great, God is gracious, and God is good. The four Gs. Glorious, great, gracious, and good. And, and I'm going to work these out. Here it is. God is glorious. This helps me filter things. God is glorious. That means that it's all about him. That his glorious is like the weightiest thing. So for God to be glorious, he should be the weightiest thing in my life, and it should attract all of my attention. Like if I'm up here and I see a grizzly bear walking through those doors and start to come after me, the weightiest thing in my life is going to be the grizzly bear. It's going to consume all of my thoughts, all of my attention, all of my emotions. For God to be glorious, he should consume us. We should fear him in a rever reverential way. And because I fear God, I don't need to fear anyone or anything else. Because God is glorious. 
Next filter, that God is great. It means that he is in control and I don't have to be. I don't have to try and control the people or the circumstances in my world. God has got it under control. And he does a much better job than I could ever do. So God is glorious. It's all about him. I don't need to fear. God is great. So I don't need to be in control. Next, God is gracious. These are filters here. God is gracious. That means that I don't have to prove myself to him or to anyone else. God's love has nothing to do with my performance. It only has to do with the performance of Christ on the cross who performed perfectly in our place. And God's grace is now extended to us. I can do nothing to get it, and I can do nothing to keep it. And as a believer, I need God's grace today just as much as I need him the day before I became a believer. Because God is gracious, I don't have to perform. So he's glorious, he's great, he's gracious. And God is also good. And I don't have to look anywhere else in life. He is good, and what he provides is good. And as we look at the text today, we can also say this, that God is God. That means that he is the authority and I am not. He is the king and I'm not. And when I see that God is God, and I see this God demonstrate who he is by being glorious and gracious and great and good, these truths need to be my filter for how I look at any circumstance in life, and I need those to guide me in my choices and my decisions. And I would say all four or five of those have been misaligned for me at one point or another in my life. It was misaligned for me, and, and God took away my success in college on the ice rink, and it made me see him for who he was and trust him. And honestly, it has happened in like a million different ways in my life where God has just absolutely wrecked me for the good. I'm not trying to be trite up here. I know there are people who have gone through the ringer in life, whether it be with a job or their health or marriage or kids. This life can beat you up. But all the more important to seek the truth. True transformation, church family, happens through Christ. True peace comes. It can be for us who are, who are fearful of the future. We can understand how God is in control of every circumstance which can relieve anxiety and fear. Knowing Christ can help us to stop being manipulative or controlling of people. With our trust in Christ, we can learn to give control of our life and others to him. Trusting God can change us who compromise 
or twist his word rather than obey him, knowing that he is in total control of the outcome as we submit to difficult truths. Even if we think there's no reason for trials in our lives, we can learn that God has purposes for our suffering. That's how we treasure Christ as the mighty God in the anguish of life. So Christian, put your mind on a God and who he is in your circumstances. Put your mind on what he has done and not not what you need to do, not your performance. Colossians 1 summarized perfectly the power of God in our lives and how we should view him by saying this, and this is, I'm going to finish out with this. It kind of gets me amped up, so if I get a little excited, I'm sorry. It says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the, bed, from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on heaven, whether on earth, or in heaven, making peace. By the blood of his cross. And you, Windsor Community Church, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if you indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. This Advent season, in the midst of every circumstance, let's treasure Christ as our mighty God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your greatness, your graciousness, your total control of everything, your mightiness. Help us to trust you in, in all circumstance. Help us to treasure you as the one and only true God of gods, Lord of lords. You are the Christ, the Messiah, and we worship you. We praise you and we thank you. In the mighty name of Christ, amen.